I'm Aislinn Green. This is Travel Tales by Afar. In every episode, we hear from a traveler about a trip that changed their life. Plus, this season, I'm sitting down with each storyteller to talk about life's big travel questions. Well, I'm not really sitting down with them because I'm recording all of this from my houseboat in Sausalito, but you know what I mean. This week, we are heading to the Netherlands with Chris Collin. Chris is an Afar contributing writer, an editor, and the senior producer for Chef Jose Andres' podcast, Longer Tables. He's also the author of four books, including his latest, called Off, a picture book about an analog world. It's very fun. Chris has an eye and an ear for, let's say, unusual stories. If you've listened to Travel Tales since the beginning, you may have heard him talk about renting a friend in Tokyo or grappling with the mystery of train travel on the coast starlight. This time, he's chasing an obscure art movement in the city of Utrecht, which isn't far from Amsterdam. An art movement that effectively died out decades ago, and yet manages to feel relevant and recognizable even today. Oh, and if you hear a cat in the background of my conversation with Chris, that is my very loud, very senior cat, Bubs, making an appearance. Chris, welcome to Travel Tales. Thank you. Nice to be here. So good to have you. I've worked with you for, I don't know, how many years now? A billion? Uh, 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> Yours is a little shorter. As listeners are going to hear, it's something so innocent, like going to the grocery store and seeing a tote bag with artwork can inspire a story. Was this the first time something like this has happened for you? I think this was probably my first tote bag inspired story. <laughs> Um, but I don't know, you know, story ideas come from all, all kinds of weird places. Yeah, yeah. And we've been talking about this story since I looked back in the email, since 2019. Yes. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I had always been sort of curious about this art movement. And I'd been curious about Utrecht, because I had heard just sort of independent of the style that Utrecht was where I absolutely had to go. And then Asunda, you might remember we had this big pandemic happen. <laughs> and at first I was like, oh, God damn it. Now I can't go to Utrecht. And then, you know, gradually over time, I realized, well, first there was a minute where nothing seemed to matter anymore. You, you know, like an obscure avant-garde <laughs> art movement from 100 years ago definitely didn't seem important. Yeah. And then it dawned on me that it actually was weirdly relevant to what we were all going through a century later. And I started to have this sort of secondary interest in, in De style, this movement. Well, we can get into why, but it became clear to me that there is an interesting resonance between De style and the chaos and loss that we all went through over the last few years. Do you think this story for you was better because you went post-pandemic than it would have been? I think we all look at the world differently after the last few years. But yeah, I, I very much, I, I would say that abstract art has always been interesting to me and also a little challenging. It's always been a little a little too heady for me to always be able to really relate to it at a deep level. I have an intellectual appreciation for it often, but I sometimes have missed a, a more sort of visceral connection to it. And that's yeah. partly why I wanted to go to the city where at least a piece of its history took root. Being in Utrecht where some key de style events began to unfold, uh, it, it allowed me to see it in a in a slightly more human and relatable key, I guess you'd say. 
one of my neighbors is an architect and painted her house in the Mondrian style, like it is like wow. blocks of color. And I've never had any kind of emotional reaction to that style of art. Like I think it's interesting, but I've never felt kind of emotionally connected to it. But learning about what it emerged from helped create that for me in a way. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I had a very similar feeling. I think a lot of people do. It's like you go to a modern art museum, you see modernism, and it's it's interesting and intellectually curious, but it's hard to really see the feeling or, ne- or know how to interpret the feeling. So I think the story of De Stijl that I tell was my way of coming to understand the human feeling behind those stark lines and colors. Not to get too in the weeds, but I still don't understand why circles were so off limits, because to me, they, <laughs> they seem like they would bring chaos together. It's a circle. It's connection. It's anyway, but you don't know. No, no, that's a really good. That was part of what was so interesting and and befuddling to me about the story from the outset was, yeah, circles were absolutely forbidden in in De Stijl. And I I have plenty of strong feelings about this and that, but I cannot imagine having such a strong feeling about a geometric shape. So um, yeah, you know, as a way, especially when you see those edicts as a response to you know to a war and and everything associated with it it's it's extra interesting in my mind what in god's name (laughs) did a circle do to these people i know well outside of art and all of this why would you send people to utrecht so if you close your eyes and you imagine the perfect city (laughs) walkable cozy green contemplative, but lively, orderly, but artsy. And with these damn canals going everywhere that are just so (laughs) fun to look at and sit next to and float on if you rent a boat. If you close your eyes and picture that place, that's Utrecht. It's just, it's beautiful. It's just the right size. And you might be thinking, well, that's also Amsterdam. I know there's a lot of Amsterdam lovers out there. I'm one of them. But if you've been to Amsterdam in recent years, you know that it's really crowded. It's pretty packed. And and all of those lovely aspects of it are uh, often jammed with tourists. So what I had been hearing for years was, you know, this sort of whispered rumor that if you want to to enjoy the charms of Amsterdam, but without all all the crowds, go to Utrecht. Were you able to make links between this city and that art movement? Were you able to say like, ah, I see, I see why Dishtile was invented here? Well, that's, I was afraid you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> I can it's, strike this from the record. <laughs> no, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, it was one of the challenges in doing this story was, you know, anytime you go walk in someone's distant and, and rapidly vanishing footsteps, it's always a little bit of a, of a stretch to see, you know, try and sort of squint and see what you can see from, from their world, you know, sort of mapped onto the current one. Part of the fun for me was, was imagining how that spirit from 100 years ago sort of morphed into the spirit I felt today. Why do you think this art has endured? I think a lot of art historians wonder the same thing. As esoteric and often impenetrable as it is, it's really popular. I mean, one art historian I spoke with said Mondrian, for example, is going to be the most well-known artist in, in the years to come. It's going to sort of replace Picasso as the artist you think of when you think of an artist. I think 
it's visually very striking. And I think even if you just have a little sense of the philosophy, it gets stuck in your head. You start thinking about the representational art the way they do. You start to wonder if, if they're right, that maybe representational art is built on systems of domination. And then and once you start thinking about that, then you really do start to see the art that you grew up looking at in a different way. Yeah, interesting. Because it is so pervasive. It's on tote bags at Safeways and neighbors' houses. You know, what is it that links so many people? I want you to go ask your neighbor <laughs> why. I, I, I'm, I'd be curious to know what their yeah. rationale is. I will. I mean, she's an architect. And so I just assumed, you know, it's orderly, it's organized, and it makes sense. Her house is a big box. So why not paint a bunch of boxes? On yeah, it? architects are, are bananas <laughs> for dish style. That's true. Right. I, and also, I mean, one thing that, that you have to do when you go to Utrecht to sort of appreciate the roots mm. of this movement is you have to remember what it used to be like, what the world was like. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, it was very much, you know, anything that we think of as kind of a modernist look or sensibility just didn't exist yet. You, you had these old, dark, ornate, bourgeois homes and buildings and institutions and mores by extension. So you really, what now we might recognize, you know, we see in, in a Frankwood, right? Home, for example, as kind of part of the, the landscape these days, it was non-existent then. Hmm. Yeah, so it would have felt revolutionary and refreshing and... Yeah, and, and liberating. <laughs> The rain came frantically that first day, lashing windows and whipping my poncho around me maniacally. I felt like a maniac, biking around a new city on a dubious quest for lines and rectangles. They say Utrecht is where you go for Amsterdam's charms, minus the Amsterdam part. I was seeing it now, the same tree-lined canals and cheerful old streets and orderly mellowness, but on a less thronged scale. Utrecht is a university town that was once a major trading port a millennium ago. The old wharf cellars have since been converted into tiny waterfront cafes and restaurants and studios. Passing the Saturday flower market, I watched two scarf-wrapped, rain-oblivious women mount bikes, tuck tulips into their baskets, and casually pedal off holding hands. You can live your whole life in America and never see tulip-bearing cyclists hold hands in the rain. But it was an event a century ago that brought me here today. A tiny, bloodless revolution instigated by a group of painters, designers, architects, poets, and musicians with a strange vision. They called themselves De Style. That's Dutch for the style. And between 1917 and 1931, they believed geometry would achieve global harmony. We can debate the results, but as short-lived avant-garde art movements go, it'd be hard to overstate de Stijl's influence. You wouldn't have Bauhaus without de Stijl, or the architecture of Mies van der Rohe. De Stijl's most famous alum, Piet Mondrian, became one of the planet's most recognizable artists. This was a tiny group of people in a pretty tiny country, but you can still see their impact in modern architecture, design, even typography. I'd become fascinated with de Stijl in recent years, but part of that fascination was absolute befuddlement. I found their ideas exotically baffling. 
They believed bold, horizontal, and vertical lines and primary colors and geometric order would resolve the chaos of the world. Circles were forbidden. At one point, artist Theo von Dosberg summarized Mondrian's thinking by saying, Vertical equals male equals space equals statics equals harmony. Horizontal equals female equals time equals dynamics equals melody. Now, typically when someone says something like this in my vicinity, I smile politely and usher my family a little further on down the sidewalk. But the De Stijl crew wasn't nuts. I got it in my head that if I spent a little time in the city where several of them had lived and worked, those ideas might start to seem a little less baffling. These had been real people living real, non-esoteric lives here. Walk around in their vanishing footsteps, I thought, and maybe something would click. So there I am that first day, pedaling past stately canal houses and shaggy willows. In general, I was absorbing the vibes of this ridiculously lovely city. But a little more pointedly, I was also inhaling the sights and sounds that a woman named Truth Schroeder had once inhaled. Schroeder had been a pivotal figure in De Stijl history, in an adjacent kind of way, and her story had unfolded in refreshingly human terms, no art theory required. Her story begins in 1911, years before De Stijl existed, with her marriage to an older lawyer. He was a traditional man in a traditional world. She was 22, creative, opinionated, modern, and soon miserable. When they married, her husband offered her a liberated life. Freedom, no children, the space to be herself. But it would not be so. He promised me all sorts of things, but didn't make good on them, Schroeder later said. He basically tricked me into this. Pedaling down puddled roads, squinting through the rain, I saw the city as she would have. The heavy, dark, ornate old homes. The old looming churches. The old looming bourgeois traditions. The gulf between Schroeder and her husband was the generational kind. A version of the Gulf de Stijl itself would attempt to cross on a broader scale. Just as her home and life felt stifling and excessive and inert, so did society to this loose collection of artists in Utrecht and beyond, from Mondrian to Van Dosberg to Bart Vanderleck. They were scratching at the same door, anxious for a future that hadn't yet arrived. My interest in de Stijl had kindled a few years back in a Safeway checkout line, watching a woman deposit broccoli into a Mondrian tote bag. Those familiar rectangles. I'd been struck by the ubiquity of an artist I knew so little about. I began immersing myself in Mondrian's writings, and those of de Stijl, and the roots of their movement. What I didn't know was that de Stijl had largely been a response to the chaos and terror of World War I, starting in 1914. Twenty million deaths. A crumbling of all things solid. Whatever inchoate restlessness one possessed... It now scalded. The Netherlands remained neutral throughout the war, and to be marooned here was to see evidence in every direction that civilization had failed. Those artists began to find each other. Letters here, conversations there. From these exchanges, a consensus began to emerge. A fundamentally broken world needs a fundamental overhaul. I, too, think the world is broken and needs an overhaul. I think that's at the heart of my interest in de Stijl. But for me, I have no solutions. But de Stijl? Within months of declaring its existence, the group had figured everything out and published a full-on utopian manifesto. In their crosshairs was the very way we perceive reality. Representational art, for instance, was inherently built on a system of domination as it centered the artist's perspective. Imagine a still life of some fruit. Why is the background blurry? 
Whose perspective are we subject to when we look at this painting? They began honing a specific new style and language of abstraction, with collectivism and universality and simplicity at the center. A reformation of art and culture was coming, they wrote. In Truth Schroeder's case, that reformation would be personal. When we last left off, she was trapped in her miserable house in her miserable marriage, longing for change. In 1923, change came with the death of her husband. She and her kids left that gloomy house and decided to start anew. Not just a new life, but a new kind of life. Years earlier, she'd crossed paths with a young designer named Garrett Reitfeld. He was making chairs and lamps according to the Destyle principles. Now, Schroeder asked him to make her an entire house. How do you want to live? Reitfeld had asked at the start of the project. It seems like an obvious question for an architect to ask his client. But how one wanted to live had been a decided matter for so long, particularly for a woman. Schroeder found herself with something she had never had before. Options. Elsewhere in Holland, elsewhere in Utrecht, the other Destyle folks were exploring their own options too. Mondrian had started experimenting with simple off-white grids, reducing art to a universally understandable, spiritually true essence. Vanderleck was covering figure studies with white paint, causing basic geometric shapes to shine through. Von Dosberg designed an all-new alphabet, each character mathematically determined. Please don't ask me to explain it. Schroeder and Reitfeld, meanwhile, were creating something even more dramatic. A few days after arriving in Utrecht, I pedaled up to a small house on the outskirts of town. The eastern-facing facade comprised a series of white and gray rectangles, broken up by blue, black, red, and yellow lines, some horizontal, some vertical. A Mondrian painting in the form of a house, in other words. A handful of people had gathered, snapping discreet photos as you would a celebrity. At my appointed hour, I joined a small tour group and stepped inside. The Reitfeldt Schroeder House is Utrecht's top de style artifact and the only inhabitable interpretation of de style ideals in the world. Though Reitfeldt was officially the architect, they had created it together. To appreciate the total radicalness of the place, you first have to picture what it was rebelling against. Those dark, ornate old homes, all that claustrophobic fussiness. Here, sun streamed in from everywhere, brightening a series of white and gray plains. Crisp lines belied a striking fluidity to the spaces. The difference between inside and outside would be hazy, Schroeder had decreed. Walls would be movable, rooms transformable. I climbed a short staircase. At night, Schroeder would slide walls this way and that to create bedrooms for the kids. During the day, the upper floor would be open. Schroeder's favorite place was the top floor, with its view of the surrounding landscape. The Reitfeldt Schroeder House would become a pioneering example of modernist architecture and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And Reitfeldt would become one of de Stijl's most celebrated figures. Only in recent years would Schroeder start to get her due publicly for her contribution. But far more important to her was the liberation it brought to her life. De Stijl, for true Schroeder, had given rise to a world that freed her rather than confined her. I get the sense that unlocked a deeper experience of life for her. 32 years after she moved in, Reitfeld joined her. They had fallen in love over the course of their collaboration. They lived there together for the rest of their lives. I was in Utrecht for the better part of a week, set up in a small hotel in the historic center, off on my bike every morning. Everything I saw, I saw through the lens of Gestyle. That's a largely imaginative project, 
given the decades that have passed since its heyday. You stare at some moorhens bobbing mindlessly in the canal. Imagine a less subjective, more universal way of depicting them. You behold a family enjoying a mobile picnic on a rowboat. How would Vanderlyck have captured this scene? Utrecht is small enough that you find a favorite cafe or two after a few days, and big enough that an entirely new section reveals itself to you periodically. On my fourth morning, I pedaled out beyond the outer canal to an industrial part of town dotted with anonymous warehouses. I was supposed to be heading to the Centrale, Utrecht's main museum, a stately brick building at the tip of the historic center. But its vast de-style collection had been temporarily removed during my visit for a renovation. So I'd finagled a personal tour of the depot where the museum keeps whatever's not on display. Arriving at the secret address scrawled on my hand, I hit a buzzer and an unmarked door opened. The woman who admitted me was named Chantal, and after extracting a promise that I would divulge no details about that location, she led me down a long hallway to a gray metal door. We stepped into a vast and quiet space where thousands of paintings hung cheek by jowl on massive sliding panels in long rows. Next to this room was another, equally vast, and another, and another. If you've ever snuck into the Louvre's private storage unit, it was probably a lot like that. For the next, what, two hours? Chantal wheeled out one painting after another. Hussars and Vanderlecks and Van Dosbergs. By the time you read this, the collection will be back on display and you'll see what I saw. Private sketchbooks chronicling Van Dosberg's evolution. Cesar Domel and Nieuwenhaus's grid of squares and partial circles, subject unknown but somehow moody. Reitfeldt's famous red and blue chair. I'd read piles and piles of gestile criticism by now, but seeing those brushstrokes up close, my reaction was visceral. I thought about World War I, still fresh for them. In Hussar's tangram-like scattering of shapes, I saw a desperate reckoning with the chaos of the world. When I had absorbed all the brushstrokes I could, Chantal released me to a sunny Utrecht afternoon. I biked away, still feeling the absurdity of thinking that you could remake a broken world with shapes and lines and colors and rules, but I also felt the irrational wonderfulness of trying, and the thrill of being in a city where that had happened. My last day, a silver sky hung low over town. All week I'd been listening to the composer Jacob van Damselier, one of the few or maybe only souls who'd interpreted de Stijl's principles musically. His chords were stark and broken-sounding and tense the sound of a world having unraveled. I put my earbuds in again, bundled up and biked toward the big metal arch bridge connecting the city to the western suburbs. Radical and finicky art movements are mortal things. When in 1924 Van Dosberg dared to introduce diagonal lines into one of his paintings, Andrian went crazy. He left the group in protest. That was it, a years-long friendship undone by a diagonal. The movement began to take on a more international character, blending at times with Dadaism, and when a heart attack killed von Dosberg in 1931, de Stijl effectively died too, 14 years after it began. I reached the bridge as a ragged crescendo was building in my earbuds. I pedaled faster. The water below was wide and slate-colored. A barge heaped with rusty river detritus plowed solemnly north. A man sat by a lamppost on the far side of the river, sketching. A mom pushed a stroller in one hand and texted with another. Van Damselier was going berserk in my ears, jamming strange notes together, no frills, just the spare essence of something unsettling. Life has been unsettling lately, too. 
We don't have a world war on our hands, but we could use some global harmony all the same. I'm going to go out on a limb and say De Stijl's aims didn't come to pass exactly. But in lieu of remaking society, maybe they affected change at a micro level. A new way of perceiving that society. A woman sliding open walls each morning to live as she wished. Even if it didn't reconfigure all of reality, maybe they found a crack in it. And with ink and paint and cords and blueprints, widened it a bit. That was Chris Collin. Chris hasn't yet found his next tote bag story inspiration, but you can bet we'll share it here when he does. We'll link to all the good follow stuff, including his website, socials, and where to buy his books in our show notes. We'll also link to Chris's other travel tales. And if you're wondering about the music of Jacob Van Domselier, the very last song we played in the episode as Chris was wrapping up his story was one of his. Next week, we'll be back with a tale from British Columbia, focusing on regenerative travel and one of the world's most inspirational rainforests. See you then! Ready for more travel tales? Visit afar.com slash podcast and be sure to follow us on Instagram and X. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's exploration, I hope you'll come back for more great stories. Subscribing makes this so easy. You can find Travel Tales by Afar on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to rate and review the show. It helps other travelers find it. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media. The podcast is produced by Aislinn Green and Nikki Galtaland. Music composed and produced by Strike Audio. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? What's yours?